Hello, welcome again to Sports. I'm not going through all the week's sports news. As ever, if you hit subscribe, we'll land in your pod feeds automatically. Joining me, Rob Harris of Sky News, Martin Ziegler from The Times, Tarek Panja from The New York Times, and perhaps not the place we always start on the pod, a sporting event, uh, one that's never been mentioned before, the Delhi Athletics Championships. What happened in the 100-metre final this week? Well, there's only one person who participated in it because... um... Just before the race, the other competitors legged it as the doping inspectors arrived. Well, so I wonder if the race was actually run. <laughs> so one person left in to do it, or do they just hand over the medal? Um, but the, uh, I mean, it's an amazing story. This whole thing, you know, if people have seen pictures of basins full of syringes from EPO injections. And then the, uh, the the women steeplechaser, I think, was um, a, a particular highlight. Yeah. Uh, so according to the report, she kept on running after the race in order to evade the dope, the doping inspector. According to the Indian Express newspaper, you had anti-doping officials chasing competitors beyond the finishing line. Correct. That's that's what that's what happened with the the the, the woman who. Who raced in the steeplechase? Uh, it's a tough race for anyone who's ever done one of them. But she just kept on going, and I think um, they managed to catch up with her just just as she exited the gates. Is that right, Martin? <laughs> yes. So the official, I presume, he must have been a former, I don't know, five thousand meter runner in his uh, in his youth, because uh, he yes, or he um, he managed to catch up with her and. Um, she was forced to to give a sample, so, but I mean, it. I think it does highlight that this is a not a, you would say a sort of elite event. I know it's a it's a sort of big athletics event in a city, but um, Tarek, it's not sort of people who are sort of going to get me in the Olympics. I, I mean, were you surprised at the amount of doping just going on? I mean, there's, apparently you can just buy EPO over the yeah, counter. Yeah, massively. So there's some videos that have been doing the rounds as well, and. Um, purportedly, to the dressing rooms and the toilet facilities there at the at the, um, at the stadium, and there are you know needles and vials all, all over the place. And this is coming at a time for India, actually, when the IOC is coming to the country in a couple of weeks for for the um, IOC session. Um, so I guess they'll have plenty of questions to answer. And it's not as if India is one of these great um, Olympic nations; it hopes to but probably not by doping, you would have thought. Well, no, and the World Anti-Doping Agency say they are looking into it. Officials in India and sitting that they will try to catch up with those who fled. One thing we've talked about on the pod quite a bit is athletics might struggle to get attention for some of its events, even the Diamond League. This event has certainly become one of the most talked about sports events of the week. And as you say, I think the IOC would like India to bid for the uh, 2036 Olympics. So this will a bit a bit of an embarrassing time. Although we say what's been talked about the most, apparently, according to one football club in England, they are the most talked about uh, thing in the world. Multiple times the population of the planet, they're cl- Birmingham City, claiming that they generated 17 billion positive media impressions related to Tom Brady getting minority ownership in the club in August. 18 billion. I mean, these days, <laughs> these days you can say anything, can't they? I mean, the, the clubs who say, you know, if you add up all the followers, each of these big clubs say they have, you've got about nine times the number of 
the people live in the world, so why not? We can add Birmingham City and its its um, stats for its influence to the to the list of of football claims and popularity. Yeah, it was all about actually trying to make the case about uh, a high-speed railway in England at that, that uh, social media impressions number came up. But while we're back onto the athletics, uh, of course, there was a huge moment in Berlin with the women's world record being smashed in the marathon by Tixit M. Asefa. And it, perhaps less focus on her run, what knocking a couple of minutes off the world record, more on the Adidas single-use trainer that was uh, being worn. Yeah, four hundred pounds. You can buy these trainers, and you can get your own, break your personal best if you want to, Tarek. But um, Rob, you would only be able to use it once, according to this. There's familiarisation time, and then a only only designed to be used for one race. And then I think the carbon rods that propel you forward inside the shoes are sort of diminished. Um, but yeah, from a climate change point of view, that sounds just. Crazy. Big carbon footprint there as well, I would have thought, Zeke's. Literally. <laughs> and it does throw into doubt all these sort of questions. Is it technology over performance? Now, clearly, if I was to put suddenly a pair of these uh, trainers on, I doubt I'd suddenly be breaking world records. Maybe you might be. and But it's clearly given that extra bit of marginal gain edge that you do need, don't you, to, to win races often. Yeah, well, I, I get. I think apparently, even for sort of people who do sort of you know amateur running as well, these these super shoes do make a big difference. Um, I've spoken to people who, who wear them, so you, you you can see people will will do it just for the, for themselves. Um, I think if you're just trying to go for a jog to try and keep fit, it probably there's not much point spending that sort of money, but. Um, if you're a person who likes entering amateur races or wants to sort of do the park run and beat your personal best, then you, I, people might might be attracted to these, these things. But yeah, the, the one race idea is just uh, you just can't get married. You're, you're mentioning mar- marginal gains there, and, and we talked about doping at the start of the um, conversation here. What's the what's the line? I remember a couple of years ago when Nike bought those um, those shoes, very strange looking shoes with the, with a big um, big fluffy heel, um, in order to to increase um, you know the, the chance of athletes to break records. Where 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 is the line here? The you know World Athletics looked into those and, and came up with new guidelines. What's the difference? Whether you you know <laughs> kind of get a mechanical aid or a, or a chemical aid. It's a good point. I mean, you, you know, you could have little springs in the soles, you know, things like that. Um, it goes back to, the, you know, when there were discussions about whether Oscar Pretorius was getting an unfair advantage from um, running with, with springs, and um, obviously because he hadn't got any legs. Uh, the, so, and he wasn't allowed to from that point of view. Um, so, yeah, where do you draw the line in terms of footwear, in terms of the, the mechanical aids you get? And it's, of course, about hoping that everyone has equal access to these. Uh, it does put perhaps those from wealthier nations, those with better endorsement deals, those with access to better funds at a, at a greater position to be able to compete, doesn't it? Yeah, and you're, you're right with that because, if you know, I think The Economist does a, a study before every every Olympics. It's um, It produces this the, the graph that, to surprise of no one, the countries that spend the most on... Um, 
on training their athletes and, and, and provide the most the best facilities, etc., win the most medals. So it's kind of always been that sort of that sort of end result. The investment pays off. But now, perhaps the big talking point in football or politics, certainly this week. That unexpected decision from the UEFA Executive Committee meeting in Cyprus uh, buried right the way through the announcement to suddenly end the blanket ban on Russian teams competing to let the under-17 teams potentially return, finding a pathway back into qualifying for them, not competing under the Russian flag or the Russian kit, but certainly very much as a Russia team. And it's uh, sparked quite a backlash, hasn't it, from various nations, as you'd expect, Ukraine, asking everyone else to boycott these matches, England, as well as Poland and uh, Sweden as well. Yeah, I mean, I think lots of things unravel on this. Firstly, I don't think anybody on the executive committee, any of the members, were expecting that this was going to come up. There was no sort of advance warning that was sort of brought in on any other other business. Um, So that's one one issue. Um, I don't think there's been any other UEFA or FIFA decision which has led to such a sort of um, strong... And certainly in, in recent years, led to such a like strong um, opposition and backlash and sort of ref- refusal by the national associations, by so many national associations, to follow the the, the new policy. Probably since the biennial World Cup and some of the Club World Cup debates, more on sort of tournament organisation, whereas this is actually about something almost far more substantive, isn't it? Yeah, but those were, um, I was thinking those too, Rob, but those were discussion points, weren't they? They never actually said we're having a biennial world cup or or, or um you know or, or, the, or in fact fifa actually said they never even proposed yeah, it yeah exactly end. i mean so, so that, that the backlash led led to um this this thing to go away but to martin's point he said you know it's added as any other business so clearly there wasn't a chance to really discuss it very much in the build-up it certainly didn't 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 um kind of leak out before 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 that vote in, in that closed room in Cyprus. Um, so it feels like it was kept under wraps, kept in-house until the last minute. And it was it was a very um, interesting meeting by all accounts. Normally these things um, are kind of rubber stamping jobs. There were a couple of people in the room that did speak up, wasn't there? It was um, particularly the, the official from, from Poland, Martin. Uh, Mr. Boniek, former World Cup star, yeah, he um, he, he opposed it, um, and I, David Gill, Lauren McAllister, they, they, they and Boniek, the three of them, they, they didn't vote in favour, but everybody else did, by the sounds of it, including, and now this is very interesting, Carl Eric Nilsson, who is Sweden's UEFA Executive Committee member. Now, uh, Sweden has a policy, uh, its sports council is a policy, that um, there will be no Russian teams of any age group uh, allowed into Sweden um, to play competitions. They're hosting the women's under 17 Euros next May. So immediately there's a problem there. Um, and I think UEFA made a rod for their own their own backs here because what's going to happen? How are they? What if it, all these countries are refusing to play if they get drawn against them? Um, what happens if 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 they qualify for Sweden um, and they can't get into the country? It's it, it's a complete mess, isn't it? 
that's one of the issues. Sweden said that they wouldn't allow Russian teams in to compete. So you've got a European Championship they're hosting, and they're saying actually one of the teams they qualify will be banned. But does come some of this come from actually that lack of consensus building beforehand? Is dumping a decision in a meeting like that going to produce the best outcome? Because suddenly you put people in a position they weren't expecting, and some of the backlash comes from that. And we have seen that in the past at FIFA, haven't we? Again, on a different scale of things, when suddenly they try to announce uh, here's an investment plan for Club World Cups and Global Nations Leagues, and that stuns UEFA officials at the time in the room who are opposed to it. So a more of a process discussion, suddenly trying to land an announcement and getting a decision isn't always the best way of actually leading to the solution, no, is no, it? No, no, but that, again, didn't pass. The people in the room stopped it from happening. In this case, you know, the people in the room, um, a majority did, did back did back this and it also flies in the face of the actual reason to ban Russia from um, football that UEFA had used when when Russia was banned and the reason was um, not about not on moral grounds it was about the fact that teams would refuse to play them and it will affect the integrity of competitions isn't this exactly where we are now with this group of countries Sweden um, couple of Baltic countries, Norway, England, Wales, already saying that they'll refuse to play these these games if they're drawn to play against Russian teams, whether under 17 or, or any other level. Nothing has changed, has it? No, that's right. And, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what the discussions were between the, the Swedish Federation and their, and their UEFA member. The same with Denmark and their UEFA member because they both voted in favour, yet the countries have said that they won't play them. So there's a complete sort of lack of joined up thinking there. Um, Lisa Klavnis, the president of the Norwegian Federation, I spoke to her yesterday. She said that she, she could sort of couldn't believe that there'd been no consultation about such an important matter at all. It's sort of been, even though UEFA has a, a the, the EXCO has a mandate. It still should, and such an important issue, consult with the, with all its 55 nations, and that didn't happen. I suppose on the other side, the fact that we have had these dissenting voices speak up in the meeting is a good thing. The fact that clearly that was able to happen in the meeting, while the lack of consultation wasn't good. But we've certainly heard the fact we had um, Gil, McAllister and Bonyek all using their platforms to speak out. Also, um, Razran, the... Uh, Romanian FIFA council member who was in the meeting as well, apparently speaking out. Yeah, no, I guess, you know, I mean, we, we are really have such a low bar of expectation, don't we, for for these meetings and these people. The fact that that they spoke um, out or, or, or made their point clear is, is seen as something shocking or surprising. Isn't that what's supposed to happen in, in meetings where you have um, people participating? Discussion is supposed to be normal, but I guess... We've got become so used to the culture of, you know, these councils, whether it's FIFA or UEFA or any other football confederation, where where there isn't much debate. As we sort of look forward, this war is going on for a long time. We're now, what, 90 months into it since Russia launched the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Of course, it started in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and uh, encroachment, of course, into uh, the Donbass as well. But... If this war was to go on for years, can we expect football and all sports to just keep Russia out in the cold, isolated for, what, a decade, even more? 
Well, I think if it, if it lasts, say, five years, yes, um, I think that that will happen. Um, Looking to your crystal ball beyond that, I don't know. What, it depends what happens with Putin. Can he if he survives? Then who who knows what's going to happen? Um, but I think if it if it yeah if it's a, if it's a still still going on in in four or five years time, I can still see the ban remaining in place. Ukraine themselves in July did actually ease things to allow Ukrainians to compete against Russians at, at events, as long as they're neutrals. In 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 some sports events, did they? I, I, that passed me by. Yeah, I mean, obviously it helps uh, Ukrainians qualify. I think there was a potential that Ukrainians would just suddenly not be taking part in qualification events that involve Russians, so it could actually damage Ukrainians' uh, Olympic prospects. And of course, it is seemingly still unresolved, isn't it, as we build up to Paris 2024, head of that IOC session we mentioned in India next month, just what the fate will be of the countries who have resisted competing against Russians, whether they will boycott or not, something they have avoided actually saying, particularly the Baltic nations and uh, Ukraine and their neighbours. Yeah, we, we've we've already had, it depends on, you know, you go sport to sport, obviously tennis had that issue at the start and then um, the, the, the actual organisers of the events were, 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 were warned um, against not including Russians and now, now we're having... Um, Russian participants as neutrals. Some often we've seen examples of them playing against Ukrainians, and it obviously has been frosty. And we've had we've had those tournaments. But but you know, on the sports governance point of view, um, you know, Rob, you said if it goes on for ten years, if you remember um, six months ago or a year ago, didn't we have the Russians suggesting they might uh, move to the Asian Football Confederation? Um, maybe uh, maybe that debate will 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 return. Obviously, it's not. Not not ideal, but I'm sure that that those conversations take place. We have we have um, nations who are are based, you know, further away from their nearest confederation, playing playing elsewhere. We've got Australia playing in the AFC instead of Oceania. We've got Israel playing in UEFA as well for, for largely political reasons. So there is precedent, isn't there? And the Asian Games have been taking place in China, and there there's been a sort of discussion about whether Russia becomes part of the uh, the Asian Olympic movement. It's something particularly being advocated by um, the president of the Olympic Council of Asia, Ranpir Singh, who's talked about uh, the border with Asia being huge that Russia has. And so it's up to them what they decide to do in future, he says. But uh, they say they've made an offer to the IOC. And uh, they said the logistics couldn't be worked out, but um, they are um, most welcome, say, Russia and Belarus uh, to join the Olympic Council of Asia. Different views in different parts of the world with what's going on, but certainly in, as far as Europe's concerned, I think um, I think it's uh, I think the, the UEFA have given the technical people uh, until October the tenth. They come up with some sort of solution about how they can manage to squeeze them into these tournaments but um i wouldn't be surprised if if they are going to be forced to backtrack uh, or at least um you know leave the policy in place but just just not put them into the the the, the tournaments next year uh, the, the qualification draws have already taken place as well so you're going to have to kind of re rejigger those as well in order to um get these teams in and then You've got already a situation. What group do you put them in? You're going to have to find a very friendly group that's willing to play these games. It's a real mess, isn't it? It is. And all those countries that won't play them, and we're quite used to teams being kept apart in uh, Europe. We've had it for many years. Even Spain and Gibraltar can't meet each other in uh, 
qualifying I think likewise Serbia Kosovo as well so all these sorts of issues but this could probably be the largest one if we're separating uh, Russia from perhaps so many of the countries actively supporting Ukraine's war effort but as we do see people do come in from the cold as well uh, the Asian Games in China also seeing quite a notable guest in terms of the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and his wife. Yeah, he was uh, somebody who you would have thought a, a few years ago, no self-respecting sports leader would have been seen uh, <laughs> in in close proximity. But uh, did I see a picture of him with Thomas Bank, the IOC president? Yeah, he was in that. He was in a lineup that included Thomas Park, the IOC president. There, and I mean, this follows. Um, over the last year, this this opening up to the Gulf countries and the, and the Middle Eastern countries welcoming back into the fold, and I guess that's part of a wider effort, isn't it? I mean, it, it's intriguing. You know, you you kind of think about how long it takes for kind of moral um, outrage to dissipate, and we we already had that with with Saudi Arabia in the past, following the the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and all those businesses and and, and countries. Um, criticizing them now suddenly lining up um to to partner with them on, on on projects in sport and elsewhere although just this week the arab league suspended their talks with the syrians about uh, normalizing relations so it shows even in the uh, the middle east the thawing of uh, tensions isn't quite complete moving to wider matters in european football and to italy and what a moment for napoli and their public row with Victor Osserman and talk about this TikTok video that was posted by them. I mean, how did they manage to put this up? Well, it's not just the one. There's one that's sort of basically poking fun at him for missing a penalty and putting it with a, a, a stupid voice um, superimposed. But there's a, another one previously with his um, showing him with a, a coconut for a head. And it, I think he feels, and from what I've read, that, and I think lots of other people feel that perhaps you know this sort of treatment would have happened to him if he wasn't from from Africa. Um, and the TikTok video has been taken down, but I think it's a, a sort of another stain on the Italian football. When I first saw that, I thought they'd been hacked. I thought someone had hacked the the because the, it was so odd and weird. Um, and then it's taken them. Took them a while, didn't it? it took them more than a day to reply, and the response didn't really carry an apology to Osman either, did it? Um, it's it's such an odd situation, um, and you know, not that it matters whether he's a good player or an important player or what, but he is a you know, in terms of um, Napoli, not since Diego Maradona probably has Na- Napoli had a had a more outstanding player, arguably than than Osman. Of course, helped him win the title last season, and now we've got his agent threatening legal action over it. But uh, certainly, one headline as I search now comes up talking about how this could help to knock millions off his transfer fee. And this was something that struck me, particularly thinking about some of the reaction to the racist abuse Vinicius Junior faced playing for Real Madrid in the last season as well. That how often do these stories of players being the victims of abuse or being targeted become about their transfer prospects or effectively saying that they have to leave the place where they're playing because of the abuse and seek other uh, uh, employment elsewhere. And 
it has become just part of the transfer speculation market, hasn't it? These abuse moments are turned into. Yeah, that, that that's something that um, was striking. And you, you pointed that out quite well um, on, on social media yourself the other day. And I thought it's amazing, isn't it? Like everything can be um, quickly sort of taken into this realm of transfer speculation into this kind of fantasy land rather than the, the real importance here is this this guy's um, uh, racial abuse and has felt racially abused and rather than rather than take that let's let's use this as an opportunity to um to 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 engage in um, transfer speculation which included uh, my inbox was full of betting companies sending me the odds of his next club uh within hours of of, of those reports which is it's bizarre. I mean, uh, you know, I think as as journalists, our trade has to take responsibility for some of that because I think people think um, lots of people in the media think that uh, a transfer story is an, an immediate big hit in terms of the number of hits it gets. So that's just a, a, a sort of unfortunate fact of of, of life these days. But um, yeah, people should definitely treat this more responsibly. But maybe it's because. We can focus more on the sports politics, the sports business aren't as reliant on transfers. Maybe a journalist at a particular outlet, they're under pressure to get those transfer stories because they deliver the hits. And that's what they have to, even if they might not want to focus on that. But certainly there is a whole transfer media reporting industry that didn't certainly exist, I wouldn't even say, 10 years ago. You have a dream, dream one day about, I don't know, when Taylor Swift marries... Jude Bellingham, on. <laughs> gonna, they'll move together to um, Manchester United. That would probably be the, the ultimate transfer story. You say that actually one of the biggest uh, stories I know that came out of the NFL weekend was actually about Taylor Swift, wasn't it? And uh, was it her relationship with the uh, player Travis uh, Kelka? Yeah, that's what made me think about it. <laughs> yeah. Shows about the celebritization of sport that could we say anything that actually happened in the NFL regular season games last weekend, apart from that. But it also shows how you engage audiences in and the, the type of stories perhaps you should come up because it does resonate. Well, just one word for you guys. Wrexham. No, Miami Dolphins record, they scored 70 points against the Denver Broncos. It's very well read, Martin. No, no, I've watched the highlights. <laughs> no, but, but yeah. the point of celebrity... Their quarterback is from Samoan ancestry. It's just, I thought at the Rugby World Cup, it's uh, quite interesting. Very good. Looking forward to reading your piece. But, um, um, Rob, so, uh, but this is this is the way the industry is going, though, isn't it? And the, the, the Wrexham, the, the, the Wrexham uh, boom is, is um, you know, on the back of the fact that these actors from Hollywood, are, uh, you know, have owned this football club. And I guess, you know, there's a lot of, I guess big clubs who'd love to have some of the attention that that has been bestowed on Wrexham just through the dint of um, being being owned by these by these celebrities, right? And I think that's that's going to be a trend to come. Concerning matters in Spain, so we've talked quite a bit about the Spanish FA in recent weeks, given Rubiales and the fallout from the kiss and the sexism scandal there. But we've had Spanish police raiding the Spanish FA. Actually, as part of the investigation into Barcelona. Yeah, things are looking pretty bad for Barcelona. Um, the investigating magistrate was effectively the prosecutor saying he believes there's been systemic corruption um, over their payments to a company b- belonging to the, the former um, vice president of the Referees Association over like 17, 18 years. Um, 
and it looks like it's going to, there's going to be a, a criminal trial, um, which means they'll have to go before a jury. Um, so I guess the outcome of that could, whatever the sort of criminal outcome um, for the officials or the club officials involved, I could have much wider implications. Yeah, systemic corruption is not something you, you want to be accused of, right? Certainly not um, uh, Barcelona in the current situation that they're in with, with the various debts, with this stadium being built, with the financing that they've received that was organised by Goldman Sachs. This 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 raises into question um, how how the terms of those financing arrangements are, 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 are going to be maintained as well. There's probably clauses in there that put Barcelona in serious jeopardy, and they're already in uh, a financial mess uh, for the last couple of years. What happens next? Although they announced profits of uh, what three hundred and four million euros this week. Yes, is there more behind yes, those uh, numbers? Yes, well, we've talked about this. We know what those are. Barcelona sold um, club assets future rights, all sorts of things in order to balance their books. These are kind of one-off sales um, that some would argue will harm them in the future. They'll, they'll kind of stop the bleeding now to um, allow them to meet the La Liga spending requirements, allow them to keep accumulating players, which is something under this president, Juan Laporta, they've been doing. Um, despite all of that financial chaos they found themselves in, they kept buying players to to to, to win the league last season, etc. And it, you do you do think about that presidential model, don't you? Uh, you come in, you 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 want to win these titles. You'll you'll spend away even if you can't afford it. Um, try and be remembered as the president who won all the all these gongs. But then you leave the club and its future in in, in a financial peril for for whoever comes next. But multi-clubs, guys, 777, any developments there since last week? Globo is just reporting um, from Vaso, Vasco da Gama, one of 777's clubs, um, the, the sort of historic club in Brazil, uh, that they are basically, um, the club is not paid uh, its debts to other clubs, which is a, a very much a no-no from FIFA, and that FIFA has either hit them with the transfer embargo is always threatening to do so, just trying to get clarification on that. Um, and 777 is also reported to have missed the payments it's supposed to make to Vasco da Gama. Um, it's promising it's going to be made next month. Uh, this is yeah, talk at a time when this company, this investment company based in Miami, is, is trying to take over Everton. Um, so you can understand why perhaps Everton fans are a little bit in trepidation about what might transpire. Obviously, we wait to see what will happen with that uh, takeover of Everton. It's still going through the regulatory processes across Liverpool. At Anfield, they've been searching for investment, maybe a sale for some time. And they have actually finally managed to announce they brought fresh investment in from a investment group, Dynasty Equity. Uh, quite a wide range of the value of that is being given from 100 to 200 million dollars but uh, um, we do still have FSG who are insisting they're committed to being the owners. Yeah that is a wide range isn't it Rob? <laughs> is it 100 or, or 200 or something in between and they said you know the reports um, had said it's a for a minority stake that values the club at, at 4 billion um, and it, this, this, this money has been used to pay down um, external debt and that was related to um, the stadium 
rebuild. Um, they've got the issue at the moment with a almost but not quite finished Anfield Road stand and, and the, the developer there going bust. Um, but but it's this isn't like a huge cash injection. It is not doesn't feel part of that big sales process, does it? That the club was engaged in um, earlier this year. Yeah, that was torpedoed slightly by Manchester United uh, owners deciding they would look at selling their club. So I think when you uh, had two of the biggest football brands in the world both going up for sale, I think Liverpool sort of took, decided to sort of take a back seat and look for a smaller investment. You've done it. You've mentioned Manchester United. That can get all our hits. Uh, the pod that tells you the future of Manchester United sale, transfer lines from Italy as well. That will hit all the uh, the SEO, won't it? Now we could perhaps we could put on our next you know social media promotion that Taylor Swift may be a listener. She might be a listener to the uh, Sport Unlocked and might be bidding for Manchester United. There you go, mate. You can hear all that here first. Yeah. Thank you as ever for listening. Yeah. Goodbye for now.